interpretation, but uh, just saying thanks for the Bible studies. Uh, They're gathering to listen to the Bible studies and spend time, um, and so uh, it's, it's awesome that they could be a blessing to them and uh, in what they're doing and what Kaylin's doing over there in Thailand. So uh, we pray blessing on her kinship and all the people that are participating in that, and thank you for listening, tuning in to uh, our Bible study time. So, hope you continue to be blessed by it. If you'd like to leave a message on SpeakPipe, to send us a message, you go to the website at www.speakpipe, S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E, dot com, slash, Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. And you can uh, toggle a button, looks like you want to leave a voicemail, and feel free to leave us a voicemail, 90 seconds or less. But we'd love to hear from you. It could just be hi, where you're from, uh, anything like that. So we'd love to hear from you. Uh, please leave us a message. Ezekiel chapter 18, and I need a volunteer to read verse 23. All right, thanks for reading that. Uh, one of the things that uh, we were talking about with Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, when we were looking at the prophets is that they, uh, the prophets were anticipating the gospel. In other words, the, the gospel was being preached through the prophets, and the prophets became uh, a major uh, force in teaching uh, within the synagogue worship. And, and part of the reason for that is that they were forward-looking. They were looking toward something else. They were looking toward a, a different way of relating to God, a different way of seeing God, a different way of understanding God than what many of the priests had taught in the years prior. So you have prophets like Isaiah, you have a prophet like Jeremiah, or you've got a prophet like Ezekiel that they're all anticipating this gospel. And they're all beginning to teach and they're all beginning to speak to the idea of what the gospel message is going to be. And so, of course, they're hundreds of years before. And there's no way that they would have known, except for by divine inspiration, and by having an understanding, a Holy Spirit understanding of what had taken place 
by reading the books of Moses, or the uh, Holy Spirit understanding of what had taken place by reading the book of Job, or Holy Spirit understanding of how God had revealed Himself through Moses. And having that Holy Spirit understanding of how God was revealing Himself brought them to this place where they could see this is who God really is. This is God's intent. This is what God has intended this whole time. This is how God created everything. This is how God brought everything into being. And what He had created was good. It was good. It was what He wanted. It was intention. The whole. It was His intent the whole time. God created things how He wanted them to be. And I know I say that a lot, but I don't know that that's really as obvious as it sounds. Because the way people have chosen to understand what God did, or understand the Old Testament, or understand how God revealed Himself to the Old Testament, it's almost like they don't even take that into consideration. And as simple of a concept as that is, that God created things the way He wanted them, that's what He wanted from the start, that's how He wants it to be, that there's nothing better, there's, there's, there's not like, you know, plan B, which would be okay, but He made it the way He wanted it. He created it the way He wanted it. He created Adam and Eve the way He wanted it. He created uh, the, the life and the world and everything in it the way He wanted it. And so what you see is a return toward that. Uh, and, and it's interesting because uh, when Adam and Eve fell, when, when mankind fell, God took the time to order things. And and after He ordered things, and the way He ordered things is that He ordered the old and the new dispensations, whatever you want to call that. He ordered, uh, He added to it infinite love because what He was going to do is going to restore things the way He had created them. And so over that time frame and over that time period, all these things were ordered and brought about to bring about a restoration of His created purposes. That's why bringing light to the teachings of Jesus is really looking at the teachings of Jesus as a restoration of that. I often talk about Zacchaeus and, and Jesus explained to Zacchaeus part of his, why he was there. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. God's original created purposes. Or when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus and he was explaining to Nicodemus that we need to be born of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he's explaining to him about how when we're born of the Spirit that, 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 that creates in us something that's different than what the generations that had come before us had in them. I mean, Jesus was born of the Spirit. He became the firstborn among many brethren. And we know the story about Jesus, and we know the story about Mary, we know the story about Joseph, and how Jesus' birth did not come about by any natural means. But the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and she became pregnant, and she was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Well, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he's saying, well, you have to be born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus couldn't understand that. Well, no, who would? Who would understand that? And, and yet, we have the benefit of seeing 
Well, that's how Jesus was born. That's how Jesus came about. That's how Jesus entered this world, is that he was born of the Spirit. And what he was doing by, by saying that, what he was doing by presenting that, what, what he was doing by explaining to Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit, he was removing obstacles that religion had put in the way. Well, you're born of a corruptible seed. And some of you may have heard that before. You know, that, 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 was, that corruption was passed down from Adam and, and they'll call it original sin or whatever they call it. And that corruptible seed had been passed down and so through no fault of our own except for our relationship to Adam that we had been separated from God because we had been born of that seed. Well, Jesus wasn't born of that seed. He had relatives, obviously, because they traced his genealogy. They traced both sides of his genealogy. And one went back to Adam and one went back to Abraham. And, and so they traced that. And yet, we know that the Holy Spirit fathered him. And so when he said to Nicodemus, well, you have to be born of the Spirit, we have to understand that, is that there's something literal about that. Because he's talking about a rebirth, being reborn of the Spirit. And so there's something literal about it, but there's also something that's meant to remove the obstacle standing in the way of our relationship with the Father. He wanted to take that out of the, the consideration, out of the conversation. And so because of religion and because of the way people thought or because of the way people chose to see things, that needed to be taken out of the conversation. And so he did. He literally took it out of the conversation by introducing this idea of a rebirth and being born of the Spirit. And so Nicodemus was presented with an idea that he could be reborn of the Spirit of God. What that did was set him free. What that did was set him free from the fall of Adam and Eve. What that did was set him free of the sin that supposedly had been had been carried on and carried on and carried on and carried on all the way to him. It set him free that he could have a relationship with the Father. It set him free that he could have an intimacy with the Father. Something that God had intended from the very start. He created it right into the creation. He put it right in there. And, and what's happened and it still continues to happen, most of the barriers between us and God are made by us. Almost every barrier that you see throughout history between God and His people are made by His people. That there's some artificial thing, some artificial fence, some artificial wall, some artificial barrier that man erects, that people erect, and it separates them from their God. Whatever that would be. Whatever it would. And so, Jesus is eliminating barriers. He's tearing down walls. The prophets were tearing down walls. The prophets were tearing down these fences that had been erected. These fences that had led to nothing but bad. And, and as they were prophesying, and whether it was Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, they're prophesying to a people that had lost everything because of the walls that had been erected between them and their God. And he's prophesying to a people, he's saying, you don't have to live this way. 
prophesying to a people. You don't have to be separated from God. Prophesying to a people. God has made a way and these barriers aren't supposed to be here. And we need this relationship if we're going to live the way God's called us to live. If we're going to live in the relationship that God's provided for us, we've got to tear down these walls and tear down these barriers that exist in our minds so that we can be free to live the life that God has called us to live. So God ordered things and He added His infinite love so that He could restore that created relationship with us. And you see it taking place all through the Old Testament. You see it taking place through the preaching and the ministry of Jesus, through the epistles of Paul and the other apostles, that all of these things are restored. And so if that's the case, what's standing in the way? I remember some of the first times I began to consider this, or I, I heard people talking about this, I got really excited. And, and one of the first things I did is I got the, the, the biggest group of like religious guys I could find, I just shared it with them. And they, they kind of humored me a little bit, but they didn't want to hear this. Because they'd figured it out. They had their religion. They'd figured it out. And, and they were the righteous and everybody else was the sinners. They figured it out that they were on the inside track. And everybody else that wasn't, well, forget about them. Who cares? You know, they're religious people. And so as long as they had the special knowledge, as long as they had the special ends, as long as they had the special spot, then everybody else could, you know, whatever. We don't care about them. What's this young kid talking about, about you know, God making a way or, or God removing barriers or God tearing down walls or God has more for us in relationship. They had worked hard, these old guys. They had worked hard to get their special spot with Jesus. And I just didn't know. Well, that's just not how it works. And it never, ever worked that way. God doesn't have a special spot because you wear the right clothes and you say the right words. God doesn't have a special spot for you because you put in your time and that's all there is to it and you've done your quota. That's not how it works. It's just not. And so, rather than be willing to think differently, be willing to accept a new idea, they just hunkered down in their pride and figured they had it made. I mean, I'm literally talking about a literal conversation, a literal opportunity I had to speak to some of the leadership on one of the largest Pentecostal denominations in the world. And didn't want to hear any of it. So, Ezekiel... Ezekiel 18.23, he makes a bold statement here. And in this bold statement, he says, you know, God doesn't doesn't take any kind of pleasure. In fact, it's really an absolute statement. He's like, God uh, takes no pleasure at all. So he's not happy. He's not happy when people die unchanged. That's not what makes him happy. He takes no pleasure whatsoever in that. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of New Testament verses so that you can put this in some context. First one is 1 Timothy 2.4. 1 
First Timothy two four and then Second Peter three nine. First Timothy two four, Second Peter three nine. Let's start with uh, let's start with First Timothy two four. Anybody? That's God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. If we could only believe that, that'd be great, right? Like if that, if that really sunk in someday into our hearts and our minds, maybe we just relax a little bit. Maybe? I don't know. Seems like a good thing, right? If the God of the universe, if it's His Will, if it's what he wants, his desire is for everybody to come into the knowledge of truth to be saved. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, I like that. So let's keep that one in mind. How about Second Peter three nine? Second Peter three nine. Again, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. So, you've got a fundamental truth being spoken through Ezekiel here. And it's a fundamental truth that underlies the whole teaching of the Old and the New Testament. Both. And here's the fundamental truth. God is not happy, or God takes no pleasure at all when people die unchanged. That doesn't make him happy. In fact, he takes no pleasure at all when that happens. That is a fundamental truth that underlies the whole teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. That's the God we serve. That's the God who loves us. If you know him, that's the God you love is that he takes no pleasure at all. He, he's not happy at all when people die unchanged. He wants to see people changed. He wants to see people come into the knowledge of the truth. He wants to see people saved. That's what he wants. And you think about it, there's certain things that, that hold us back from being changed. Now you think about what holds you back from changing your mind. I'm going to give you a couple words here. See if it makes sense to you. I'll give you one word right now. What would hold you back from, keep, from changing your mind? How about stubbornness? How about being stubborn? Yeah, stubbornness, stubbornness really holds us back from freely changing our minds. We find ourselves all stubborn. If anybody is perishing, hear me here. If anybody is perishing in this universe, it's because he or she refuses to come to God. That's the only reason. If, if a person is perishing, it's because he or she refuses to come to God. 
And so there's a certain stubbornness to that. There's a certain stubbornness to seeing that. A certain stubbornness to being able to accept the hand of God, being able to accept the help of God, being able to receive the truth of God and and live in it. There's a certain stubbornness to that. And that stubbornness affects us in our ability to respond to Him. Maybe we don't want to change our mind. All right. (coughs) Maybe we want to believe that we're right. I don't know. People are stubborn for different reasons. Let's so look at John, Gospel of John, chapter 5, and verse 40. John five forty. Yeah, you see the refusal? You see it? And you can read what you want around it, but if you want life, you got to come to Him. And that refusal to do that is a certain stubbornness that's in us. And, and I mean, I, I don't know how else to explain it. But when it comes to God, the idea of stubbornness really isn't something that is desirable. I believe that Stubbornness can be a trait that God can use in us. And he describes that specifically about Ezekiel. When he spoke to Ezekiel, he commissioned Ezekiel. He's like, I'm going to send you to a people who are hard-headed. That's what he told him. He says, but I'm going to make your face as flint. In other words, I'm going to make your head even harder so that when you come against them, that you're going to be more hard-headed than they are. Alright, so that's God using that. And you could describe that, realistically describe that as a stubbornness, but it's a stubbornness to bring about the will of God. It's a stubbornness to bring about the Word of God. It's a stubbornness to persist when others would give up. That's one side of it. The other side of it is that stubbornness that defends what our way of thinking is, or defends our way of living, or defends our way of life against what God has for us. And that leads us into the second word I'm going to share with you. Why don't people change? And we're going to call it pride. And the idea of pride is related to stubbornness in the sense that being prideful, I'm going to make one statement about being prideful because I've talked about being prideful a lot. Here's my statement. In all of our disputes with God, in all of our disputes with God, I'll say it again, in all of our disputes with God, He is right, we are wrong. And you can argue that, you can get mad about it, you can say the exact opposite as many times as you want, it doesn't matter, but as many times as you're in the dispute with God, He is right, and we're wrong. And that's it. Pride will tell you you're right even when you're arguing with God. That's what pride does. I mean, you don't think the devil, you don't think Lucifer, understood that he was on the losing side of that battle from the very start. When Lucifer said, I'm going to rise up against God, I'm going to lead a rebellion in heaven, 
and I'm going to take over the throne of God. You don't think at some certain point in that he didn't know he was just going to lose? I think he knew. But I think pride drove him to do what he did. And pride will drive you to your destruction if you allow it. That's up to you. We don't have to let pride drive us to destruction. We don't have to. You don't have to. I don't have to. It doesn't have to be that way. And the third thing I'm going to share with you about why we don't change, and I believe this may be a driving force for stubbornness and pridefulness, and that's, I'm just going to leave it at fear. Fear. Fear of change. Fear of being hurt. Fear of something different. Whatever it could be. I don't want to give you any ideas. I'm just saying. That fear can drive us to stay stubborn even if we know we're wrong. And fear can drive us to stay prideful even if we know we're on the losing side. Fear is powerful. Most of the people that I know that are prideful and most of the people that I know that are stubborn have a lot of fear in their life. And dealing with it on the level of fear has been, for me, one of the only effective means of dealing with stubbornness and pride in people's lives. If people know that they're safe, if people know that it's okay to be wrong, if people know that they're not going to be hurt in the midst of whatever it is that's going on, my experience is they're more likely to listen to reason. And even maybe, sort of, kind of, admit they're wrong if they know it's okay and that they're safe. And, and it's really hard when you're dealing with prideful people to be able to pull out of that enough to be able to change your tactic and to be able to say, all right, this is a fear issue and deal with it as that. It's hard. Because your ego gets involved. Their ego gets involved. You want to prove you're right. Well, when, when you're dealing with emotional levels, and especially with something as volatile and controlling as fear, logical arguments don't matter. And if you've learned anything during the last 18 months, is this. Logical arguments get thrown out of the window when people are afraid. They just do. Fear is a horrible master. And normally, when, even when people are normal thinking people, when they're driven by fear, they become more akin to beasts than they do to humans. And so fear has to be dealt with. It has to be. When it comes to our lives, we need to deal with fear in our lives. If we're going to actually come to a place of trust with God, if we're going to actually come to a place of, uh, of intimacy with God, if we're going to actually come to a place where we find ourselves at peace with our Father, we're going to have to deal with fear in our life. 
Because fear driving us drives us into areas that hinder us from really responding to Him with a whole heart. And so I, I can only encourage you that we've been given the means by which that we can deal with fear. The Bible talks about fear. It says perfect love. In other words, that perfect love of that Father, that complete love of the Father, it casts out all fear in us. And that makes sense to me because the way you deal with fear is you deal with fear and love. That makes sense to me because you deal with fear so that people feel safe and they feel like it's okay. Well, that's what perfect love does. And it makes perfect sense to me that as perfect love is ministered into our hearts, as perfect love is ministered into our lives, we're more capable of actually hearing and actually responding instead of defending and fighting. So we serve a God that is more ready to pardon than to punish. And, and I know some of you are brought up with this idea of punishment. He's going to get you. And, and you know what? Back in the old days, maybe they don't do it anymore, but parents used to play that up. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Jesus is watching. What does that tell you? Does that tell you he's watching you because he loves you and he wants the best for you? What does that tell you? Jesus is watching. Yeah, you know what that means. You know, you understand that. There's an implied penalty for that. Alright? And so you get in your mind as a child, Jesus is watching means that he's looking for you to do something wrong so he can punish you. You get it? So let that get into your head and you let that get in your head as a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, all right? That's hard to shake out of your head. And if that's your first, second, third introduction to Jesus, I don't care how many times you sing, Jesus loves me, you still know He's watching. And I'm not trying to be mean to anybody and their parents, because, I mean, you got well-meaning people and they're trying to, you know, teach lessons or whatever they're doing. But anytime I hear a parent say something like that, I just cringe. Because that's just not the God we serve. He's not watching to make, see if you're going to make a mistake so He can punish you. He's not watching you and so you should get in the line because He's mean and He's going to take care of business if you don't. That's not the God we serve. That's not who He revealed Himself as. He revealed Himself as a God who's ready to pardon rather than punish. And if you don't think He loves little children... You need to reread the Gospels a few times. It wasn't Jesus that was sending the little kids away. It was the disciples that were sending the little kids away. Who didn't like the little kids? Jesus or the disciples? Follow it. Jesus loved the little children. Right? And, and He still does. He's not watching little kids. Make sure they're in line. That's not, we have no indication of that. We have, we have nothing from his life that would ever tell us that. In fact, he wandered off when he was 12. Seriously. His family left him in Jerusalem. They had to come back for him. His mom's all mad at him for wandering off. He's like, I just had to be about my father's business. Does that sound like a guy that's going to be coming after you because you worried your mom? 
He worried his mom. Because it's about his father's business. That's who he is. That's reality. That's really who he is. The reality of the situation is that he has shown himself over and over and over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament, first dispensation, second dispensation, whatever dispensation. He has shown himself over and over and over again that he is ready to pardon. That's what he shows. That's who he is. We use a word for that. It's long-suffering. He is long-suffering. If any of you know my wife, June, she is long-suffering for many, many years. And I can explain that to you more, but she just is. She's patient. She waits things out. She sees things through. And she is long-suffering. And she is a great, great example of how God is patient with us, loves us, and is long-suffering in our lives. The other side of this coin, and it's the same coin, but if he, he's not happy, if God's not happy when people die unchanged, which I don't, he's not, he declares that. In fact, he takes no pleasure at all when people die unchanged. Well, the other side of that coin is, when people change, God is very happy. Now, I know I'm using simplified language, but I want you to really understand what I'm talking about. When we change, when our lives change, when we make decisions to change, God is very happy because it's that change that fulfills His design and purpose, what He created for us. And that makes Him happy because He created things a certain way. He made things a certain way. He calls us to certain things. He has certain purposes for our lives. And so when we change and we see change coming in our life, and our lives come more into line with His will and His purposes, that makes Him really happy because that's the way He created it to be. That's what He wanted. That's what He still wants. And so he's desiring that. He's desiring that for our lives. And so we get the opportunity to see change in our life. He even empowers us to change. He calls us to change. He gives us opportunity to change. He puts circumstances in our life to change. He gives us every opportunity to see change in our life. And when we see that change, he's really happy about it. He is really, really happy. He is ready to receive, to help, and to uphold every person, every person, every person who wants to change. Isn't that the key, though? Isn't that the key? Do you want to change? That seems to be the key here. The key here has to do with us being pliable enough, us, us being moldable enough to want to change. To not being so set in our ways that this is, well, this is who I am. Yeah. You want to really say that? You want to really live like that? I catch myself saying that, and I have to repent. Because, yeah, I'm this way right this second, but I don't have to be this way. I don't care what level it's on in my life. I don't have to be that way. I don't want to be that way. And so I'm not going to proclaim over my life that there's no hope, that this is just who I am. Well, you know what? God can change that. 
He can give me opportunities to change that. Things that we look at in our lives that we think, well, that can never change. Well, you don't know that. In fact, I know that it can. I believe that it can. I'm believing for those kind of changes in my life. I believe for even like DNA changes in my life. Like stuff that's encoded into my DNA to change. I mean, the way they can read DNA these days and they, they can look at it and they can say, okay, you have these traits and these characteristics. I mean, just from your DNA. I mean, you think to yourself, well, that's set, right? Not even that set, though. God can change things. God can bring about other things. He can, he can help us and he can, he can change things that are in us. And I really believe for that. I know that some things are so deep-seated, they take a while. Okay, well, so be it. Stay open. Let's see what God will do. I know that God has... I believe that God has more for us than we're willing to see all at once. And I believe God has more for us than maybe we're allowing to happen all at once, too. But all I can do is encourage you to stay open. All I can do is encourage you to stay on that path with Him of change. All I can do is is encourage you really to take hold of that and embrace Him in this moment where He wants to bring about change in our lives instead of fighting Him. Sometimes we can't see it. That's okay. Sometimes we don't know where He's taking us. That's okay. That's called trust. Sometimes we don't know what the end result's going to be. That's okay. That's an exercise of faith and an exercise of trust in our life that we don't know what the end's going to be, and it's all right. But at some point, hopefully, we find a place of trust, enough trust in our life that we will go along with the changes that He wants to make. You see, the person who wants to change Now, this is going to be a weird statement, but I want you to really think about this. The person who wants to change is a true believer. Okay? The person who wants to change is a true believer. What does a true believer look like? There it is. And you can come up with as many weird definitions of that as you want, but that's the best definition I know of what a true believer is. Ah, I want to change. God, I want what you have for me. God, even if I can't see it, I want it. If I don't understand it, I still want it. God, I want to be, you know, do what you want me to do. Well, what's that going to be? I don't know. I don't know what that even looks like. I don't even know what that's going to be in 10 years, 5 years, 2 years. I have no idea. I have no clue what that's going to look like as we move forward. I have no idea. If the future becomes today, I have no idea what it's going to look like. That's a true believer. That's what a true believer looks like. Something about God that we, I think we could, if we get a hold of it, it might help us, is that mercy is His delight. He loves having mercy. That's His delight. Mercy. Mercy on you. Mercy on me. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of the Father. Get it? Right? 
And so, what was he? What did he do? He went around healing people. He went around delivering people. He went around showing mercy. He went around forgiving people. I mean, he'd forgive people even when he was going to get in trouble for forgiving people. He still forgave them. He's going to get in trouble for healing some guy's hand. He still healed him. Then he threw on a bonus, your sins are forgiven. I guess since he was already in trouble, might as well go for it. That's his delight. That's his delight, though. And you see that in Jesus, and you see that manifest through his life, and you see that happening in him all the time. Is that that, that is his delight, his mercy. He proclaimed it. He preached it. He modeled it. How many times do I forgive somebody who hurts me? Seven times? Seventy times seven. What? Yeah, he loves mercy. Is that really hard to understand? <laughs> he loves mercy. How many times do you forgive somebody? Seventy times seven. Yeah. Or if he's asking somebody like the rich young man, he asks the rich young man, he's like, he's like, did you keep the commandments? Uh, yeah, I have for my birth. Well, he knew he hadn't. And what was his response to that guy? Just all pridefully saying he'd kept all his commandments since birth. What was his response to that? said he loved him. And he loved him. Because mercy is his delight. Even when somebody's telling you it's just a, a lie. Even when they're lying right to your face. Even when their pride has risen up. Even when they're talking out in fear. Well, how do you respond to that? Prove him wrong? Nope. He loved him. Mercy is his delight. Mercy is his delight. Both in the now. Okay? And what do I mean by that? I mean in the now, meaning your life right now. He delights in mercy over your life. You think about all the bad decisions you make. Just seriously. I'm not, I'm not trying to make anybody feel badly. I'm just saying we make bad decisions. Well, He delights in mercy in your life right now. Why? Because He wants to see you change. He does. He wants to see you grow. He wants to see you do something differently than what you've been doing. And I know we look at that and we've been taught in our life that, all right, well, the way to do that is by, you know, really just pounding it and proving them wrong. Well, what if the way to do that is to show mercy? What if that's really the answer? What if it's really the answer that we show mercy to people and we love them? That just might be a, uh, an idea, right? To be long-suffering and merciful. It might just be an idea to be forgiving. It might just be an idea to be full of love in people's lives. And I'm not talking about not speaking truth. Speaking truth is speaking truth. That's okay. But you know what? People, they need love. They need mercy. They need grace. They need to feel safe. They need to feel like they don't have anything to prove. If they're ever going to stop living in pride and they're ever going to stop living in stubbornness in their life, they have to be able to relax to see real change. Real change. And I think God calls us into that. It's the message of the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Dispensation to the New Dispensation, the message of Moses to the prophets to Jesus. It's the message. 
Mercy is the message. And so in the now, He shows us mercy so we can grow and our lives are better. In the now, He shows us mercy so that we can trust Him more and we come into a deeper place with Him. In the now, He shows us mercy so that we can lay down pride and lay down stubbornness and become the true believers that He's calling us to be. And then, of course, mercy is His delight in the everlasting. I mean, you think, it's like, where does He want us? With Him. When? Now? Then? Forever? And so He delights in mercy in the everlasting. And I, and I think we can kind of get that. Is that we have, alright, well, he, He's going to show mercy and we're all, you know, and He's going to make sure that we have an opportunity for spending eternity with Him. And I think sometimes we overlook that we still got another 70 years or 60 years or 50 years or 40 years or however many more years we have here. And He delights in mercy now. And He delights in mercy in the everlasting. Got a couple more things I want to share with you. Uh, one, it has to do with despair. It has to do with despair. And I want to make a positive statement here. There's no need, no need, no need to despair about God. No need. And too many times I, I run across people, Christians, former Christians, whatever you want to call them, that... Their life gets so chaotic and it gets so messed up, they just give up. They give up. Their life gets so off the rails, they just give up. And I want you to think about that as despair. That they come to a point in their life where it just seems like there's no road of redemption anymore that it messed it up too bad. Too bad for whom? I messed it up too far. Too far for whom? God's a redemption specialist. And, and no matter how much we mess it up, there's enough mercy there. No matter how far we go off the rails, He can still get us back on. No matter how much, how much chaos that we've allowed into our life, he can still speak order over our lives. And so, to despair is a lie. And to despair is not the work of a true believer. Because the despair is to limit God by what we can do, what we can see, and what we can fix. And you can't limit God's power based on your power. You can't limit God's vision for your life based on your vision. You can't limit God's creative work and work of order in your life based on what you can bring order to. Because He's infinitely more powerful in every area. And so it has nothing to do with whether or not you can do it, because you obviously can't. That's never really in question. Your chaos is your chaos. The real issue isn't whether or not the chaos is there. Chaos is there. The real issue isn't whether you're going to make bad decisions. You're going to make bad decisions. The real issue isn't whether you're going to mess things up because you're going to mess things up. 
The real issue is, are you going to despair? Are you going to trust God and be a true believer? Because the word for us as true believers is this. The disposition of the mind of God is toward your salvation. That's his disposition. And the true believer knows that. The true believer never doubts that. Whether he sees it, he doesn't see it. The true believer never doubts that disposition of God toward his salvation. Whether or not he can actually see it coming to pass, or he can't see it coming to pass. Where he can feel it, or he can't feel it. Where his brain can conceive of it, where his brain can't conceive of it. It has nothing to do with that. The true believer just knows that God's disposition toward him or her is toward his or her salvation. Period. No matter how badly you messed it up. And so he's the one that leads us toward that. He's the one that brings redemption into our life. He's the one that pours out the perfect love. He's the one that brings about freedom and liberty and deliverance and takes us where we need to go. If you can receive it. If you're too busy beating yourself up, you're not going to be able to receive his dispensation for your mess. If you're too busy rejecting yourself and applying that to God, you're not going to be able to receive his love and his mercy and his grace over your life. If you're too busy living in a relationship with God like a five-year-old, because that's what you were told back then, in that kind of fear, in that kind of dread, then you're not going to be able to receive your big boy and big girl forgiveness that God has for you. Because you're going to be stuck somewhere else. That's just a lie. And so I want to encourage you towards something. Because, man, you have hundreds of years of guys preaching this stuff before Jesus ever came along. Alright? It's the truth. This wasn't made up by some gospel writer. This wasn't made up by some preacher in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This wasn't made up by anybody. This was something God revealed from the start to the finish. And we're either going to find ourselves in that story or we're just going to make something else up. And I want to encourage you not to make something else up. Let's begin to dwell in a simplicity. Let's begin to dwell in a spot that we can just believe Him. We can believe the truth. And find grace and mercy to help us now. Okay, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and I'll pray for you. And I'm going to ask God to do a couple of specific things. So, Heavenly Father, I, I pray for us tonight, and I ask that uh, we be able to receive your truth. And I pray for our hearts, our minds, our spirits to be scrubbed clean tonight. I pray a, a scrubbing clean of our minds from the lies of our childhood. I pray a scrubbing clean of our hearts from the lies of our childhood. 
I pray a scrubbing clean of our spirit from the lies of our childhood. And I pray, Father, that any spirit of religion that would be speaking over us would be cast away in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would silence familiar spirits around us. I pray you would silence familiar spirits of religion that would still speak to us. I pray, God, a silencing over them. And I ask God in their place, your truth, your truth would reign. Your truth would find root. Your truth would become more prominent, would become louder, God, in our hearts, in our minds, and our spirits than any lie that we've carried since our childhood. So God, I pray your truth. I pray your truth to resound. I pray your truth to, to, to fill us. Fill us. To fill our minds, to fill our hearts, and to fill our lives. God, I give you thanks that when we change, when we fulfill and we come into your design and purpose that you've created for our lives, it makes you very happy. And so, God, I pray that we would find ourselves on that path tonight. Thank you, God. I thank you for your help. I thank you for upholding us. And I thank you for empowering us as a people who want to change as true believers tonight. We delight in your mercy even as you delight in your mercy. We give you thanks, and we give you praise. Pray you'd make this real to us. If we ask it in Jesus' name, let's grieve by saying, Amen. Amen. Alrighty. A little bit of Ezekiel for you tonight. God bless you, and we'll see you again. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the community dad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah. 